never in a billion fucking years, never would I ever think this kid is capable of ever doing something like this. He would never do, he would never do this. This is Katie. She's from my hometown, Ringwood, New Jersey. We're hanging out at a house party, taking shots at the kitchen table because there's really nothing else to do in our town. And inevitably, the conversation turns to Zach Wooster, our classmate, an accused murderer. Wait, so what, what did you say before? I said, I dated Zach, uh-huh. end of uh, summer, into fall. So when did you find out that he was involved in this crime? I found out from my best friend who also knew him. Like, I literally, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, no. She's like, this was Zach. I'm like, no fucking way. Like, and she said the same thing because we both knew him. Like, we were hanging out with him every fucking day Mm -hmm. in the summer. Like, and so you found out that he like was involved in this murder, and then like, what was going through your mind? I knew it wasn't him. Knew it. Yeah. Knew it was not him. There was never a moment where you were like, uh, I wonder if he actually did this. Never. I was like, what actually happened? Because this is all fake to cover up somebody else's story. How do you know? Like, what was he like? He was just the chillest kid in the world. Never did he have a bad part of his soul. He liked music. He liked all the crystal scene. He was so, like, good vibes. Literally, I think he used to say good vibes. He was so, like spiritual, literally the nicest, like, hearted person. One day it's all gonna come out and, like, the real person's gonna be fucking bad. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I'm gonna take the shot. Take that for the record. It is for the record. Okay. It's for the record, baby. Here's to Zach, because I know you're innocent. Cheers. Cheers. I'm Sam Anderson, and this is the Emerald Triangle. How much marijuana was out here? Not that much. How much is not that much? I don't fucking have a clue. And then I shined the light on him, and he just had that stare. I've only seen him fucking movies. I've only ever fucking seen a movie. There was blood everywhere around him and on him. It looked personal, like there was some retribution there. Who would have had the biggest issue with Jeff? I personally think Zach. Zach orchestrating it. That's what it seemed like to me, yes. Chapter two, Outlaws. For me, this story begins in my childhood bedroom in 2017. I was 25 years old and trying to make a career as a journalist in New York. But I had just gotten laid off from my job in public radio, and I couldn't afford the rent in New York City. So I wound up back at my parents' place in Jersey. And if you've ever moved back in with your folks after trying to make it on your own, you know that transition can be surreal. Sleeping in your childhood bedroom, staring up at the Bob Marley poster that 17-year-old you thought was cool. It's hard not to feel like a failure. I did take some consolation in the fact that most of my friends were still around. In fact, many of them never left at all, because Ringwood is a hard place to leave. It's the epitome of small-town America, a place where time seems to have stopped somewhere in the mid-70s. 
the kind of town where the neighbors all know each other and people leave their doors unlocked at night. I spent my childhood riding bikes around the cul-de-sac and taking swimming lessons at the lake. In the spring, we played Little League Baseball. My dad was the coach, and my mom ran the snack stand. In the summertime, us kids roamed the streets in packs. Untethered by cell phones or parental supervision, we were free, floating through the neighborhood like the fireflies that lit up our backyards at night. These are the memories that flooded into my mind as I lay there, looking up at Bob Marley's face, wondering how the hell I ended up back in this town that no one seems able to leave. So yeah, I was having a bit of a quarter-life crisis there in my childhood bedroom when I noticed something else hanging on the walls. A pile of medals from my days on the wrestling team. Mostly participation medals. I was never that good at wrestling. But you know who was? Zach Wooster. I was probably 12 or 13 years old at the time, and I remember Zach as one of the kids on the team I didn't want to get paired up with during practice because he would toss me around the mat like a hacky sack. Zach was two years younger than me, but he was bigger and stronger than I was with a buzz cut and a tough guy persona to match. He had this intensity to him that I found pretty intimidating. The kind of kid who seems to have a lot going on beneath the surface. After high school, Zach and I lost touch. Then, a few years later, I was home on summer break, and I ran into Zach. But he had completely changed from what I remembered. The buzz cut was grown out into a long mop of hair going down to his shoulders. He wore baggy clothes and a crystal around his neck. He transformed into a hippie. Zach and I caught up a bit, and I felt like we connected that night. Because back in high school, I was kind of a hippie too. So it was cool to see someone else breaking out of the mold. After that, I didn't see Zach again. Now, years later, he's all anyone can talk about. The Ringwood kid accused of murdering a pot farmer in California. I would say about seven or eight headlines, just headlines, Zachary Wooster wanted for murder. All these articles said the same thing, that Zachary Wooster was accused of killing Jeffrey Settler, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. From my bedroom, I opened my laptop and started searching the internet. The first headline I saw read, Homicide in Laytonville. Suspect sought. Warrant issued for Zachary Wooster. With a big picture of Zach's face right below the headline. He has a beard and is wearing sunglasses and a blue flowery shirt. He actually looks super chill and confident in this photo. Then I found a photo of the guy Zach was accused of murdering. 35-year-old Jeffrey Settler. He looks like a hippie version of Jesus, with long dark hair and a beard even bushier than Zach's. He has a big smile on his face. Why would Zach want to kill this man? There had to be more to the story. The first thing I did was get in touch with my friend Abby. Their brother was Zach's best friend. I knew that at one point after graduation, Zach started spending a lot of time with their family. Here's Abby. It was like an unassumed brother that just kind of like became part of the family, if you will. And here's Evan, Abby's little brother. Zach probably hung out here 80% of the week. I would say he moved out of his mom's place when he was 18, 19 years old. Uh-huh. Right, pretty much right after high school. Evan explained that Zach was having trouble at home. His parents were divorced, his dad lived out of state, and his mom wanted him to join the military. But Zach didn't want to go down that path. 
money was tight, and Zach's mom was forced to move in with a friend, which meant Zach was on his own. That's when he basically moved in to Evan and Abby's house. It was almost like a seamless transition, like very normal for him to be there. Weird if he wasn't there or like, you know, my parents would be like, where's Zach today? My mom fucking loved Zach. My mom like stands Zach so much. My mom wishes that Zach was her child. The same with my dad. They really loved him. Yeah, they fucking loved him. How would you describe his personality? Very like mellow, passive, not like passive aggressive, just like very like go with the flow, chill, respectful, quiet, a very kind, gentle soul. Around the same time, Abby was going through a difficult time in their life. They had recently come out to their parents. Being home and like being like queer in a family that like doesn't know what the fuck that means. There'd be this like weird tension. Nobody wanted to talk about it or address it, but Zach would be like asking me about like my girlfriend or like engaging in like that side of me, which I was very like, appreciative of. Did he ever tell you about what his future, what he thought of himself doing, what he wanted to do? There's always business ideas. This is Derek. He's another one of Zach's close friends. I felt like every three months was the new business idea. He wanted to buy a bunch of school buses and start like a, uh, some sort of like limo service or some <laughs> shit. Suffice it to say, the school bus limo service didn't work out. But it was inspired by one of Zach's passions, going to music festivals, mostly EDM and dubstep. And he was just like my go-to like, Hey, you down to have a good time? Like, let's go rip this music festival. Because um, I feel like that was his escape. What was he escaping from? Yeah, what was he escaping from, man? The brutal fucking truth of life. I was getting the idea that Zach was pretty lost. And I could relate to that. Being in your early 20s, not really sure what to do with your life. We all go through it. But it seemed to hit Zach harder than the rest of us. He was dealing with a lot and all he wanted was an escape. I mean, the best way to put it was, good kid, good heart, he just tried new things, got hooked onto these things he shouldn't have. Drugs, adventures out to other states just to go to festivals and spend God knows how much money. I think Zach became his own enemy. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? 
From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. So, Zach is on his own at a young age. He's partying too much, and his friends are starting to worry. But what does all this have to do with Zach being accused of killing a pot farmer in Northern California? Well, about a year before Jeff Settler was murdered, Zach went to a show in Virginia. I was dancing like a maniac all night long. I wanted to take a shower. We go back to the hotel. This is another one of Zach's friends, Brian. It was like a little scummy, cheap one. So Zach was breaking out like bed bugs or something. Oh shit. So he goes in my car, gets my Benadryl. Zach heads to the car, while Brian jumps in the shower. Comes back in the room, I'm in the shower. All of a sudden I hear him pounding on the door. He's like, just got shot. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I, I just got shot. <laughs> and I was <laughs> That's like, insane. I'm just like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, hey, look. Zach shows Brian his t-shirt. It's stained with blood. Apparently someone was breaking into my car. He went to go confront a gentleman from what he told me and the guy shot at him and he like dodged it, but uh, still grazed his chest, so. Oh my God. We were hallucinating at this time and- uh, You were high on the psychedelic. Yeah, yeah, we were tripping on acid at this point. And he's like, I'm gonna call the cops. I'm like, think, think about this for a second. We have drugs on us, so like, you know, there's no bullet in you, it grazed you and stuff. But you know, he's just like, I, I, I don't feel safe. We can't go outside. I'm not feeling like we're trapped in here. I'm calling the cops. Zach calls the cops, but they can't find the guy who shot at him or any evidence of a shooting. So instead, they search Zach and Brian's hotel room. They found his drugs that he had on and arrested him. I couldn't believe what Brian was telling me. Zach called the cops because he had gotten shot, but then they arrested him? Brian told me that he scrounged together the money for Zach's bail. But in the end, he was convicted of drug possession with intent to sell. The judge put him on probation, which means if he fucks up, there's going to be big-time consequences. A couple months later, Zach's back in New Jersey at a neighborhood dive bar called Flips, and his friend Derek walks in. And he just had this look on his face. And I was just like, dude, like, what the fuck? I was like, you do not look happy right now. And he was just like, bro, I got fucking caught again. Derek told me that Zach was doing a drug deal in a car when the cops rolled up. He was arrested again. And now he's violated his probation. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? And he goes, you know, I called my lawyer. And, you know, he said I was going to go to jail for five years. And I was like, bro, like, it sounds crazy, but like, at least go to court and see what they say. He goes, no, like I'm leaving tomorrow. I already talked to my friend, blah, 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 blah. Zach made up his mind. He was going to run. I'm just like, what? I hope this is like, you know, the ketamine talking and you being drunk talking. This is madness. I kind of just thought it was just like a little drunk emotional type thing. And I was like, you're really not gonna fucking leave and be a fugitive. It's just so outrageous. Like you're gonna go on the run Dude, what? But to Zach, it wasn't outrageous. That's because he knew someone who had already done this. His name was Michael Kane. 
Kane had also been arrested for selling drugs. But instead of going to court, he skipped town and headed to Northern California to hide out on a pot farm in the Emerald Triangle. And Zach decided to follow in Kane's footsteps. It was a choice that would change his life forever. I didn't hear from him for five months. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of bugs. Like, I don't know what the fuck happened. And I was just like, is this kid dead? Finally, Evan gets a phone call. It's Zach. He explained to me that there's literally like hundreds of people that just live in this like city that govern themselves. There's no cops, there's no nothing. He said it was absolutely crazy. The people that own the farms are the people that kind of like control most of it because they're paying everybody and they control people. He said hundreds of people live there and they all worked on the farm. Some migrated there from other states, some didn't. Most of them in the same predicament as him, evading the law, working for cash off the books. He seemed happy, everything seemed to be working out. Six days after that phone call, the news broke that Zach Wooster was wanted for murder. In a panic, he called Derek for advice. And I was like, dude, I don't know what the fuck happened, but I was like, you can't be running from this now. You can't be a fugitive wanted for drugs. Like, they didn't even give a fuck about the drugs at this point. Like, you're wanted for murder. I was like, you really have to go in and own up to your fucking shit. You really do. And he's like, dude, like, I love you, man. Like, you know, I'm turning myself into the police station now. And he goes, also, you know, I have to do what's right, too. He goes, I don't fucking do it. Zach did turn himself in. He would be the first of seven suspects arrested for this crime. And one of the others was Michael Kane. That was Zach's friend from back east, who we followed out there. All of them were charged with murder. And all of them pled not guilty. If convicted, they could face 25 years to life in prison. Every once in a while, I would check in to see if there was an update on the case. And then, in the summer of 2018, it was back in the news. The suspects had struck a deal. All seven pled guilty and agreed to sentences ranging from three to 14 years. Zach pled out to first-degree robbery and got nine years in prison, but nobody was convicted of murder. And because there was never a trial, there was nothing in the public record to explain what really happened or how Zach was involved. How could this possibly be the end of the story? What happened out there in those mountains to cause this totally normal hippie kid to become involved in a horrible murder? I realized I'd probably never know the answer, unless I went to the Emerald Triangle myself to investigate. Plus, I was still unemployed. So I spent the next few months writing pitches to anyone I could think of who might be interested in this story. And by the spring of 2019, I was able to secure just enough money to travel to California and survive for a couple weeks of reporting. Before I left, I made one last visit to Brooklyn to see some friends. And I was telling them that I was going to the Emerald Triangle to chase this crazy story about how this kid I grew up with might be a murderer. Everyone found it totally shocking, except for this one guy. His name was John. John wasn't shocked at all, not even a little bit. He just sat there, smoking a cigarette and shaking his head. Sounds like classic fucking weed world shit to me. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent? 
or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. All right, so we're rolling down to the beer store. I'm holding the mic. This is John. When he told me he had experience working on pot farms, I convinced him to jump in my car for an interview. Here we are. We're in the car. We're making a podcast. We're, <laughs> we're just hanging out. Uh, we're talking about living the outlaw lifestyle. So, how do I start this? The very beginning, I hitchhiked out to California looking for a weed job. 2009, you know, and it was still pretty wooly out there, you know. John was in his mid-twenties and looking for adventure. He'd never been out to what he calls weed world before, but he'd heard it was a free and easy place where you could smoke weed and make money at the same time. So he drove out to the mountains of Northern California. I just go to the coffee shop that all the people with dreadlocks are hanging out at, and I just sit there and wait for somebody to pick me up. Eventually I get picked up and I start working on a farm. And that was fine. I was young and I made like 700 bucks. And at the time, being on the road, 700 bucks cash for a week of work, partying on the side of a mountain was like, booyah, cool. <laughs> like, you know, I realized like, okay, you can go out here and like make some money and be a total like tramp. You know, I was at that point in my life, I was just on the road, hitchhiking, riding freight trains, doing whatever the fuck. Like just did not want to have a regular job. John wasn't alone in this desire to escape conformity. He followed in the footsteps of those who came before him. In the late 60s, a group of long-haired, peace-loving, reefer-smoking hippies became demoralized with urban life in San Francisco. And they headed north to the mountains, where the land was cheap and, more importantly, isolated. They called this movement Back to the Land. They started communes, grew vegetables, and planted cannabis crops there among the redwood trees. In the 80s, the government cracked down and tried to eradicate cannabis. But then, in 1996, California legalized medical marijuana. By the time John arrived in the Emerald Triangle in the late 2000s, demand for high-quality weed was soaring, and thousands of new pot farms had sprung up. This time became known as the Green Rush. It was a boom time. Weed growers were making bank, and the huge demand for labor to help harvest the crop attracted people like John, who could make a lot of money without having to give up the itinerant train-hopping lifestyle. There were other perks, too. You're in literally, like, the most beautiful part of the country you could ever imagine. Fucking enormous ancient redwood trees, mist coming off the ocean, mountains, the beach, everything's there. It was beautiful, you know? And just, like, everywhere, just freaks. Literally everywhere you look. 
The people attracted to the Emerald Triangle during the weed harvest are not your average nine-to-fivers. The cast of characters I interacted with out there was pretty huge, you know, from like old school hippies to young flat brim hat wearing weed bros to like total fucking like junky graffiti kids on the side of the road, you know, and like oogles, dreadlocks, fucking tweakers and vans. Just like every hotel room is filled with fucking like trimmers with money who are trying to party, you know. After his first season of trimming, John was hooked. So he headed back next spring to do it again. Started with little seeds, put them in the little pods. The entire thing, from soup to nuts, grew the fucking grass, you know. Guarding the farm, staying there constantly, you know, living up in the plants, just making sure, like, no one's going to show up and rob you because that shit happens all the time. And we grew the grass and we got our friends to come out and trim it, and we sent it off and made like, I don't know, 40 grand. It was cool. Just and for you, that was your cut, 40 grand. Yeah, yeah. People who had experience were making a hell of a lot more money than that, but for someone who just like got their feet in the dirt for the first time really growing pot, like it was a slamming deal, you know? For the first time in his life, John was making real money, and he didn't have to pay rent either. Not bad for a tramp. But there are downsides. Trimmers are paid by the pound. So the more you trim, the more you make. The work is repetitive, and the days are long. Conditions are shitty, you know what I mean? Crapping in the woods. No access to town. A lot of the times there's one person that's allowed to go to town. Everybody's stuck on the mountain, and you just got to put your order in and just hope they come back with it. You know and what that's I mean? And that's the rule of the, bo- the boss is, like, you guys can't go to town because he doesn't want you. Totally. They, don't want, they want as little in and out as possible. Once you're out there on a farm, it's customary to stay there until the job is done. Because most of these farms are illegal, and they don't want cars driving in and out, revealing their location. So you're all stuck in some tiny shit cabin. Could just be a bunch of fucking tarps strung up in trees, and you're all crapping in a fucking, like, toilet that's not hooked up to anything, and is just totally outside and completely exposed to the elements. That (laughs) shit was nasty, dude. Like, Jesus Christ, have some fucking self-respect, dude. You kidding me? Trimming weed and shitting in the woods for months on end could get old for sure. But the real downside of working in the Emerald Triangle is the risk. Cops, thieves, and the constant fear of violence. John told me one story about a time he was put in charge of guarding a whole crop by himself after the grower left town on some sort of business trip. I'm out on the side of the mountain, like, turning over soil in the mud, you know, rainy season's harsh up there. And my phone falls out of my pocket, lands in the mud, and just crapped out, totally. So now I'm on the mountain with no phone, no nothing, closest neighbors like a mile away. I'm sitting on the porch, and I'm drinking a tall can, I'm nervous. And some guy in a big giant truck rolls up, hops out of the truck, and is just like, we gotta clean this place right now, feds are coming, like, we're out of here. We get rid of everything, you know. We're throwing guns, ammunition, fucking weed, just throwing shit in contractor bags and putting it in the back of a truck. Middle of the night, dark as fuck right now, by the way. Like, what's going through your mind at this point? I'm fucked, like, it's all going down and I gotta just move, I don't know. 
straight up, like, I'm in over my head. <laughs> you know, like, I'm on some crim shit and I gotta fucking do whatever the fuck this guy says and get the fuck off this property. They remove all the weed, all the guns, anything incriminating, and they take off. They drive south towards the Bay Area. It's quiet in the car, and we're just like sitting there looking ahead. I'm freaked out, you know. The guy's just fucking driving. And he's like, you know, don't worry about getting pulled over. Like, you know what happens if we get pulled over? I'm like, what? And he flips open the center console, and uh, there's just, you know, the butt of a gun in there. He just pulls the gun out, flips it, and puts it at my head. He's like, I'm just gonna do this. Puts the gun to my head, and like puts it back in the center console and keeps driving. Finally, after driving for hours, they arrive in Oakland. The sun is starting to come up, and the driver takes John out for breakfast at a diner. Then he goes to an ATM, pulls out a hundred bucks, gives it to John, and then takes off, leaving him alone in a parking lot. I never fucking heard or saw from any of them again. <laughs> and they still owe me a fucking grip of money. How much would you say they owe you? 30,000 bucks, you know, which for me is a lot of fucking money. Eight months worth of pay, gone in an instant. It sounded rough, but John told me that it's actually really common for workers not to get paid out there. It happens all the time for all sorts of reasons. The crop fails, the grower gets robbed or busted by the feds, or sometimes just takes off without paying anyone. And for the workers, there's really not much they can do about it. It's not like they can file a complaint with the labor board. But despite the conditions, John said he wouldn't trade the experience for anything. You miss it? Definitely, big time. Hugely. <laughs> the work can suck, and it's hashy and stressful, and like there is like tweakers pulling knives and being crazy, but it's all sort of part of the whole just reality you're in at the time. Like, you know you're in outlaw country. And so if you're, like, totally prepared to just, like, be in outlaw country, no one gives a fuck what you're doing as long as you're just, like, not a narc. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard the term hill crazy? Oh, yeah. Uh, California paranoia. Yeah, totally, yeah. Tell me about hill crazy. Mountain fever. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to bring that up. Yeah. Well... You just start freaking out. Everybody does, you know? You just see it happening around harvest season. Everybody out there is fucking nuts, you know? Yeah. Everybody's paranoid. Looking over their shoulder, no one trusts each other. Like, being alone on a mountain for eight months, paranoia is just a part of day-to-day -day existence. How much does that have to do with smoking the weed? Did you smoke when you were out there? Yeah, totally. That's a good question, honestly. I mean, you never shit, that, that is some, no, never. That is some <laughs> chicken before the egg shit, yeah, dude. Hard, what's what we call hard-hitting journalism. I'm going to be honest with you, you kind of just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course it's got to do something. Yeah, I mean, everybody's fucking stoned out of their gourd up there all the time, man. And if they say they're not, they're total liars, dude. Like, it's crazy. But no, I, I don't think so. There is something that happens to your brain when you're alone on a mountain for that long and doing something illegal. You know, all those things combined, it's a perfect recipe for just like a total paranoid cocktail. Mm. 
And it, it is real, you know, there's reason to be paranoid. People get busted all the time. People do get robbed all the time. This shit's real, man. It is the Wild West. It's straight up the Wild West out there. The cops are not coming, man. That's it. You're on your own, you know. Finally, our conversation turned to Zach, and I asked John if he thought that Hill Crazy had something to do with the murder of Jeff Settler. Who knows what the fuck happened on that mountain, and you, like, I totally respect you for, like, going to try and find the fucking answer. You are never going to find out what the fuck happened on that mountain. No one's going to tell the truth, you know what I mean? Are you going to go interview people in the hills in Mendocino? In my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm going to show up my little podcast gear. I'm going to be like, hey, my name's Sam. Hell I'm gonna- fucking <laughs> no, dude. <laughs> Good luck with that, man. You ever been to the bar in Laytonville? No. Yo, dude, you're in for it, man. <laughs> I like you. I'm having a killer time. I'm going to tell you straight, no one is going to talk to you, you know, in this situation, in Laytonville, California. No way, you know? I'll take that as a challenge. Yeah, I hope you do it. I hope you find somebody out there, but it's no joke out there. Next time on the Emerald Triangle, we're going on a road trip to Laytonville, California. I pulled out my binoculars and I'm sort of searching the hillside for like pot farms, and I think I found a couple. And I make some new friends. The legend, fucking Jeffrey. When he passed, I felt like a part of me passed with him. Until everything goes off the rails. Fuck man, I feel like I'm in too deep. Like, why did I let that happen? Why the fuck did I let that happen? Crooked City, The Emerald Triangle is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Novel and Sony Music Entertainment. The series is written and reported by me, Sam Anderson. Our senior producer is Joe Wheeler. Our producers are Alexa Burke, Lee Meyer, and Zach St. Louis. Story editing by Mark Smerling and Austin Mitchell. Our assistant producer is Sasha Baker, with additional research by Ivan Devoin. Scott Curtis and Cherie Houston are our production managers. Fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. Mixing and sound design by Daniel Kempson. Our title track and additional tracks are composed and produced by Robert Quijano and Christopher Rose, with additional production by Nicholas Alexander. It was engineered by Peter Oviat and recorded at Moonflower Sound Studio in Taos, New Mexico. Additional music from Marmoset and Epidemic Sound. Development by Willard Foxton, with special thanks to Indira Bernie, Max O'Brien, Sean Glynn, and Matt O'Mara. Also, special thanks to all the studio musicians at Moonflower Sounds. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Crooked City Pod. And if you've enjoyed the show, please don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening. And I'll get you guys some beers because you're doing me a favor. All right. This is weird. I'm being mic'd up. Yeah, I never do this shit. Yeah, it's a little strange. The fucked up thing is if you're wearing if you're wearing a microphone, 
you'll forget it. And then you start saying all kinds of weird That's shit when I feel like the, the best thing would be, like, this guy's doing the right thing. Getting me fucking loaded and just, like, telling stories. Listen. I'll do, <laughs> He's like... He's doing a great thing. I like this guy. Yeah. So, like... What's his name? Sam? Is that it? Is it Sam? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. He's gonna listen to this. <laughs>